This morning, we're going to jump right into it. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, should be Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. Of course, if you're watching from home, you can grab your phone or your tablet and follow along that way as well. 1 John can be a little bit tricky to find. Thankfully, there's a table of contents. You'll find it at the back of the Bible, so you can follow along that way, or you can just try to find it yourself. Start at Revelation and go backwards. Big numbers of the chapter numbers, small numbers of the verse numbers. Here's why we're starting this way. When you arrive at 1 John chapter 4, you'll probably see a subject heading, and it'll say something like this, testing the spirits. Some of your translations might say something a little bit different, like discerning false prophets or the resurrection of the dead or something of that nature. And you look at that and you go, what does that mean and how do we do it? I've been given 30 minutes to talk this morning. At the end of those 30 minutes, I want to give you three tests so that you know, is this spirit from God or is this spirit from something else? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our church family. Thank you for what happened with Carly Slack in the first service when we got to celebrate with her again. The joy of seeing one of our teenagers get baptized. And God, as we come and we sing together and we hear mission updates together and we hang out together in the foyer, may all of this be done for your glory, including the message. So God, we pray that my words would fall down, that your words would be lifted up, and we would be encouraged this morning. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Today is Pentecost Sunday, and I want to tell you something that took 1,500 years to unfold. When we get to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, we open it up and we find the Israelites in slavery to the Egyptians. And so they're calling out to God, God, please help us. We thought we were your chosen people. We thought that you called us and invited us to something special, yet here we are in slavery. By the time we reach chapter 12, God has raised up a man named Moses, and Moses tells the Israelites, God is going to rescue us. And over the last couple of chapters, from chapter 10 and 11, we get nine plagues that take place. And then God says to Moses, in Exodus chapter 12, the tenth and final plague is about to happen. Here's what's going to take place. Every Israelite family, and if they're too small, grab a couple families together, are going to get a sacrificial lamb. It must be holy, spotless, blameless, nothing wrong with it whatsoever. And you are to sacrifice that lamb. Eat the meat, but take the blood and put it on the door frames of your homes. This way, when the angel of death comes, it will pass over the homes of the Israelites. But for the Egyptians, the firstborn son will die. Fast forward 1,500 years, and we see this every year at Easter, where we go, not only does Passover take place, but the death of Jesus, a perfect, holy, spotless, blameless lamb, takes place, not just on a random weekend, but on the very same day, at the very same hour, when the high priest is sacrificing the lamb for all of Israel, Jesus Christ dies on the cross, holy, perfect, spotless. Now, many of you might be familiar with that and say, Dave, we know how that works. We know how all of that comes together. We get it. But you might not know the next part. In Exodus chapter 12, we have the Passover take place. Do you know where the Israelites find themselves 50 days later? At the base of Mount Sinai. And what happens at the base of Mount Sinai? God gives them the Ten Commandments, and then over the next few days and weeks, the rest of the Torah. Fast forward to Leviticus chapter 23. 
and God is giving to Moses, who then passes on to all the Israelites. Here are the festivals that are going to take place. You're going to practice Passover, and this is when it's going to take place. And then you're going to take the Feast of Weeks, and that's going to happen exactly 50 days later. And the Israelites start to recognize, wait a second, when we left Egypt, 50 days later we were at Mount Sinai, and here we are practicing Passover, and 50 days later we have the Feast of Weeks, and both times you give us the gift. You gave us the gift of the Torah the first time, you're giving us the gift of harvest the second time. And the Jewish leaders, the rabbis and the teachers, they recognize there's something beautiful happening here. There's a symmetry that's taking place. And all of the Jews from all of the tribes of all of the nations of, Israel, uh, of the people of Israel would come together to celebrate because it was the giving of the Torah and the giving of harvest. Fast forward 1,500 years. And it's a Passover like we have never seen before. Because at that very same time, the sacrificial lamb is being slaughtered. Jesus Christ sacrifices himself, not just for the Jews, but for the entire nation of Israel. And then what happens in Acts chapter 1? We read this. On one occasion, while Jesus was eating with his disciples, he gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then we see this beautiful symmetry all come together. The nation of Israel, uh, pardon me, the, uh, the nation of Israel is descending upon Jerusalem. And they're coming together to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, which is the celebration of a brand new harvest and the celebration of the Torah. At the exact same time, 120 followers of Jesus are gathering together. And the Holy Spirit comes on them with power. And now we're at a fork in the road. Fast forward to 1 John chapter 4. And we look at it and we recognize there's something happening here. We can either follow the Holy Spirit or we can follow these false spirits. Which one are we going to follow? If it's helpful, I always preach from the ESV. This is how 1 John begins. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now throughout the book of 1 John, we see John, the last of the living disciples. He's probably about 90 years old at this point, And he deeply loves the church. At one point in the Gospels, we read, John is the, uh, is the disciple that Jesus loved because he probably embodies this love that Jesus is passing on. And so he calls the, kid, um, the uh, audience beloved those who I dearly love. He calls them children. You are children of God. He calls them little children. You are my flock. You are the people that I have seen come to faith. And then notice in 1 John 4 verse 1, that word test. That th this word test is a metallurgic term, which means um, for those who practice metallurgy and you take the silver or the gold and you get rid of all the dross and the extra, how do you know that it's valuable and pure? And he's saying to the people of Israel, he's saying to the, the audience that he has here, how do you know that the teaching is valuable and pure? How do you know a teacher is worth listening to? Now, this isn't an invitation to have roast preacher and go, all right, let's talk about Dave's sermon every Sunday and we'll point out where he made mistakes. Just because someone isn't a good preacher doesn't mean they're a false preacher. 
I've had the privilege of preaching the gospel for 20 years. I'm 42 years old. When I was 22 years old, I wasn't that good at it. But that doesn't mean what I did was wrong. On the flip side, just because somebody is a good communicator, and you've heard lots of good communicators, you've showed up to church on a Sunday morning, um, you've gone to a conference or a seminar, and you thought, that guy was amazing. He told stories that made me laugh, and then he told stories that made me cry, and he was philosophical and deep, and he never talked about the Bible or about Jesus at all. Now, John's not asking everybody in the room, all his audience, to be a theological watchdog. There's a difference in a secondary matter of interpretation. But what he is asking them is this. Does the teacher represent the character and the doctrine of Jesus? Does the teacher represent the character and the doctrine of Jesus? This is verses 2 and 3. By this, you will know that the Spirit of God, every, um, by this you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So I think we can agree, when we, when we come to church, we recognize that what the teacher thinks about Jesus is of the great importance. And here are four of the things that we must believe. This is of primary importance. Um, does, do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do we believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he is without sin and that he died and he rose again? When it comes to the scriptures, having good theology isn't a nice bonus. It's, um, it's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This isn't about theological snobbery. This isn't about thinking, oh, we're smarter than other people. But what we think right helps us to live right. Now, if you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll see in verses 2 and 3 a subtle shift in what John is saying. In verse 2, he says, every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh is from God. It's very specific. But when you look at verse 3, it broadens it out a little bit to say, simply confess Jesus, which opens the discussion for a broader topic taking place. Now, the purpose, the reason 1 John was written is because these false teachers have infiltrated all of these house churches. And he's writing to the group of people to recognize what is false teaching and what is proper teaching. For example, the false teachers have no problem saying Jesus is the Son of God. So far, so good. But question number two becomes a stumbling block. They believe Jesus was spirit, but didn't come in the flesh. This is how we know they're a false teacher. The, um, John begins his letter by saying this very first verse, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Jesus wasn't just some spirit. He was a physical person. He got tired like we do. He faced temptation like we do. He understands what it means to be human. In writing this, John is specifically talking about the false teachers and what they're teaching. So listen closely. Because I think we see this and we go, well, this is kind of a filter for other religions. But Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, they don't believe any of this. They're a whole different religion and they want people to follow them. John is talking specifically to the Christian church. And so let's talk about what's happening in the Christian church. Specifically, what about Jehovah Witnesses and about Mormons? 
I'm not looking for a show of hands, but how many of you, maybe it's small group, maybe it's um, kids' church, maybe it's Sunday mornings, have heard that Jehovah Witnesses and Mormons are different than us. Don't believe what they say. They're not followers of Jesus. But then they come to your door and you think, man, they really sound like we do. What's the difference between us? Well, let's take a look at these four questions again, and we'll start to see something different. Now, I know not everyone's a note taker, but when we look at these three filters that we're going to be looking through, and when we think, well, if they confess Jesus, here's the four questions of primary importance. This is one of those Sundays where you might want to write it down just to have it with you. A Jehovah Witness will come to your door with a Watchtower magazine and talk to you about Jesus, but this is not the same Jesus we worship. They'll show you their Watchtower magazine. They'll even have a Bible that they claim is the same Bible we have. It's not. But when you look at these last two questions, Jehovah Witnesses do believe Jesus is without sin and that he rose from the grave. The problem is Jehovah Witnesses believe Jesus only rose spiritually from the grave and not physically. What about the first two questions? Do they believe Jesus is the son of God? Some of them might answer yes, but they do not. They believe that Jesus is created by God and that he's actually the archangel Michael. Jehovah Witnesses believe Jesus was, um, was not, uh, Jesus was not God's son, but is um, a lesser type of God. Therefore, the answer to the second question is a hard no. But what about Mormons? Because a Mormon can walk up to you and say this, Jesus is the son of God. He lived a sinless life, was the perfect sacrifice for our sins, and rose three days later. And that sounds pretty good, right? Because you might be kind of nudging your partner and saying like, isn't, isn't that what we believe? It's totally what we believe. Mormons can say Jesus is the son of God, lived a sinless life, perfect sacrifice for our sins, rose three days later. So what's the difference? Mormons also believe Jesus is the physical son of God but he's not God himself. In other words, Mormons believe the exact opposite of the false teachers of John's day. The false teacher of John's day were saying, we don't believe Jesus was human. Mormons are saying, we don't believe Jesus is divine. If you're taking notes, a couple other things, Mormons don't believe in the Trinity. Mormons believe that you become God upon death. And because the United States outlawed polygamy on earth, they're saying, it's gonna be a party in heaven. At least if you're a guy, if you're a girl, not so much. Back to the church. If you've been attending Ellerslie for any length of time, you know that whenever I preach, I'm going to point to Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's the Pentateuch. It doesn't matter if it's the Psalms and Proverbs and all of history. It doesn't matter if it's the prophets or the gospels or the epistles. I will point to Jesus at some point in every message. Why? I believe it comes out of John 5, 39. John, uh, pardon me, Jesus speaking to the Pharisees say, you diligently study the scriptures because you think by them that you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have eternal life. Now, please listen close. I know lots of pastors that don't talk about Jesus every week. That's fine. But if they never talk about Jesus... Who are they pointing to? Who are they telling you about? And if Ellerslie isn't your home church, or you listen to people online, or you read books that you think are from Christian authors, and they never talk about Jesus, who are they pointing you to? Take another look at verse 3. 
Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. When we hear that word Antichrist, all sorts of pictures go through our minds. Maybe it's something like this demonic figure. Maybe it's this person who's bigger than life. Maybe it's a political leader in the past or present or someone to come in the future. Is it maybe even the embodiment of Satan? But the spirit of the Antichrist is simply what it says. It's someone who is anti-Christ. Because Satan doesn't care who you worship. Satan doesn't necessarily want you to worship him, although he'd love that. Satan just says, I don't want you to worship God. So if you worship family or money or power or your hobbies or comfort, that's fine for him. Now there is going to be a final antichrist down the road. But right now it's just the spirit of the world that says, we want you to be against Jesus. Antichrist. Test one. Do they confess Jesus? Test two, how do they behave? First John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. A couple minutes ago, I pointed out that John uses a number of different terms for endearment in his letter. He talks about beloved, he talks about children, he talks about little children. When he talks about beloved, it's because he's about to say something weighty. He's kind of buttering you up. When he's talking about little children, he says, I want you to understand, you are a child of God. You have been adopted as sons and daughters to the great and glorious king. Live like it. Live like you are part of a family that is different than this world. We see in 1 John chapter 2, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way Jesus walked. What is your character? What are your attitudes? What are your behaviors? Does it point to something bigger than yourself? Over the last year, we've seen some wonderful growth at our church. From April 2022 to April 2023, average Sunday morning attendance went up 250 people. We baptized over 75 people last year. And praise God for what he's doing in our midst. And so when we hear about this change and we hear about new people coming to faith and we see it with our own eyes, people's lives being transformed, we go, that is awesome and all praise goes to God. But there are other factors at play as well. If we're being realistic, um, we were still coming out of COVID a little bit. So some people are coming back to church who may not have been at church in a while. There's going to be some changes that take place because we went from one lead pastor to a new lead pastor, and that's going to bring some changes. Now, we also talked about an inescapable mission and being people who are invitational in culture and sharing the gospel regularly, and hopefully that played a role as well. One of our newcomers to Ellerslie, uh, new to Ellerslie, not new to faith, came up to me maybe six months ago. And she said something that brought me so much joy. She goes, Dave, the staff at Ellerslie is amazing. And praise God for that. Colton was away all week. So the worship leaders today are people that he has trained and discipled and brought up. And they love working with Colton and Nathan. Praise God for that. You see Kelsey baptize Carly Slack and we celebrate. We hear of kids that come to church and their parents say to us, you know, we were debating sleeping in, but our parents, but our kids said, you can't miss today. 
I love the fact that we have a male youth pastor and a female youth pastor. There's excitement in the room. And while many of you can't name more than two or three board members, they keep me in line. And that's amazing to do. My wife still hasn't figured out how to do that. Now, if I was writing this passage of scripture, I'd probably wrap it up there. Seems pretty good to me, right? How do they behave? Oh, pardon me, I think I skipped ahead. My apologies. This is important. When we see a slow decline in life in an organization, that's normal. As we get older, our bodies don't work the way that we expect them to. And so the way that our bodies have a life cycle, so do churches and so do organizations. So at a typical church, it's normal to see that we're getting a little bit older, we don't really want things to change, and so we can get new pastors or new young families, and eventually we're going to have to shut the doors. It's sad, but it's normal. But if you have a church that's going along just fine, and suddenly it drops off the cliff, it's almost certainly because of a character issue. The pastor commits adultery. The pastor is belligerent to staff members. The pastor lacks moral integrity. The pastor doesn't give a rip about what people are saying in the community. Let's put the two tests back on the screen. Do they confess Jesus? And how do they behave? How many of you would know someone, I am not looking for a show of hands. How many of you know people who say they would check every box in that first category? Do they confess Jesus? Yes. They believe Jesus is the son of God. They believe he is fully God, fully man. They believe he was sinless. They believe he rose from the dead. Check marks everywhere. How do they behave? Ooh. Don't really like that person. My previous church was in Alberta Beach, and I was the lead pastor of a, a small rural church. And a, a big name... Um, communicator was coming through from Ontario, and he was awesome. He preached one of the best Sunday sermons I have ever heard. It was fantastic. It pointed to Jesus. He had great PowerPoint. He was funny. He was engaging. He was thoughtful. Everything was great, and he was a jerk. When he came to the church, he treated me like I was his slave. Alberta Beach, believe it or not, doesn't have a booming hotel scene, and so we set him up at someone's house who has a house overseeing the lake, who love Jesus, who are gifted hospitality. And they came up to me Sunday morning and said, he was rude, he was belligerent, he wasn't kind to be around at all. In Alberta Beach, we had a big front lawn right in the front of our church, so the uh, sidewalks kind of came up and made an L shape. And so rather than this man taking um, the books from his car and carrying them up the sidewalk or even asking for help, he took his car, slammed it in reverse, ripped up our turf, and then slowly unloaded the books. Did he confess Jesus? Yes. Was he a pleasure to be around? Not at all. Listen closely. Jesus doesn't say the world will know me by how smart you are. Jesus says the world will know me by how you love one another. There's three verses in scripture that terrify me. And if you listen to me long enough, I usually go through each one of them throughout the course of a year. This is one of them. 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Other translations will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You probably know where I'm going from this. If you don't know what Jesus looks like, watch me. And it's not because I'm perfect. It's not because I'm holier than thou. 
It's because I want to be a teacher who teaches and backs it up. How do I talk about Jesus? How do I build others up? How do I talk to people in the foyer? Do I go and talk to the person who's standing by themselves or do I just hang out with my close friends and not talk to anybody? Do I embody the love of Jesus? Does our staff embody the love of Jesus? Do our board members, three, four, five of whom we're voting on this next week, embody the love of Jesus? Going back to a slide we saw earlier, does the teacher represent the character and the doctrine of Jesus? Now, if I were writing this passage, I'd probably stop right there. Right? It seems like that's enough. What else do you have to do or what else do you have to say? But John does give a third test. Read verses five and six along with me. They are from the world, he says. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The third test, who are they listening to? Now, understand this word listen can be understood in numerous different ways, and all of them are important here. Are they listening to God? Do they believe that God has a vision, a calling, a theology, a doctrine that they need to know and be aware of? Are they listening to other teachers? And what other teachers are they listening to? Are they listening to men and women who love God, have great theology, who back it up? Or are they listening to just whoever they want? The third one, do they listen to other people? Do they listen to you? Do you feel like they genuinely care for you? If you've been around Ellerslie over the last couple of years, you've probably seen Sid Coop. Sid is um, one of the guest speakers that we bring in regularly. He doesn't even live in Edmonton. He flies in from Kelowna and he preaches here. And Sid Coop is a gem of a man and I call it a privilege to, for him to be my friend. Now you might not realize, because he was here certainly when I first started as lead pastor once a month, about who he is or, or what he does. Sid literally has a national ministry from Victoria all the way to the Maritimes. He is considered one of the top three youth ministry architects in our entire country. He is a highly sought after speaker and regularly fills up auditoriums much like ours. And he's incredibly humble. Not once or twice, but on multiple occasions, I have been with him or around him in a conversation and someone's brought up something about biblical history or a leadership concept or a book they're reading or a big question they have and he'll say something like, oh, that's really interesting. Tell me more about that. You see, if you're a follower of God, the word of God is life-giving. It doesn't mean it's always easy. That doesn't mean we can always respond the way we want to because we still have that sinful nature that rears its ugly head, but we end up being more and more like Jesus. On the flip side, people who aren't true believers resist sound doctrine. It doesn't make sense to them. It doesn't fit their man-centered way of thinking. Even when Jesus himself God made flesh, walked along this earth. His own disciples turned their back on him. I get a kick out of the exact verse there, by the way. John 666, <laughs> the disciples said, yeah, we're not into this anymore, Jesus. The religious leaders saying, you know what? I don't know if we believe this guy could actually be the Messiah. This past week, I was looking at my news feed I was scrolling through and there was an article that popped up, not from some low-level news outlet, but from the National Post. This is the title, and I quote, 
one-third of Canadians fine with prescribing assisted suicide for homelessness. One-third of Canadians are fine with prescribing assisted suicide for homelessness. Does this sound like something the Spirit of God would say or the Spirit of the world? So when you're listening to Bible teachers, who are they referencing? Are they talking about the Bible? When you go to church, whether it's here at Ellerslie or you have a different home church and you're just visiting with us today, does your pastor listen to you, care for you, and answer the questions that he has, that you have? When you read books, this is a great one. When you read books, who's recommending the book on the back cover? Can you imagine picking up a book and it says, how to rapidly grow your church? And me and Joel and others are like, oh yeah, we should read this. What does it have to say? And on the back, it's like um, the author's mom and the author's Bible college prof from Podunk, Manitoba. And his mom was like, oh, John is a great guy. You should read this book. He knew Latin when he was four. It's not helpful. I want to wrap this up by going back to Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Peter, the disciples, and a hundred others are praying fervently. It's the Feast of Weeks, one of the biggest feasts in the Jewish calendar. Ten days ago, Jesus told them, I am going to heaven, but I'm sending you a gift. But they don't know what it is. They don't know what's going to happen. And as they're praying fervently together, suddenly there's a sound like a rushing wind. And Peter looks up and there's flames of fire above everybody's head. And all of these Jews, 120 of them, are suddenly talking in all of these different languages. And out of the temple come all of these other Jews from all over the Middle East who have traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, to hear the reading of the Torah, to be reminded that everything they have comes from God. And as they walk out of temple, they're hearing people proclaim the name of Jesus in their own language. Acts chapter two, Peter stands up and says, do you want to know who Jesus is? Because just 40 days ago, during Passover, when the high priest sacrificed the lamb at the exact same time, Jesus Christ, also perfect, spotless, holy, blameless, died for your sins. Three days later, he rose from the grave. He is fully God, meaning he is perfect in every way. He is fully human, which means he can relate to the temptations and the challenges and grew tired just like we did. He is without sin. And by conquering the grave, he shows us that he has conquered death and he has conquered sin. And if confessing Jesus isn't enough for you, look at the behavior that we are showing. 120 of us have been so impacted by the Holy Spirit of God that we are speaking in languages we have never studied or heard before. And as you come out of temple, you are being impressed with the good news of Jesus. Do they listen? After hearing Peter's sermon, do you know what happens? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, what are we supposed to do? Peter replied, repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. We stand at a fork. Do you follow Jesus Christ and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Or are you going to follow after 
the evil spirits who are trying to trick you and take you down a bad path. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the epistle of 1 John. Thank you for how deep the Apostle John loves and encourages and helps us to think. And God, may we be a people who recognize that you have given us tests. Do they confess Jesus? What is their behavior like? Can they back it up? And are they willing to listen to God, to others, and are they willing to listen to me? And God, may we be a people that pursue you and desire you and want more of you because we know your Holy Spirit is the best that is offered to us. Please give us strength to follow you and you alone. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.